Hey Scott, where's the turn on to Boylston? H-E-R-E-F-O-R-D. Four runners, Mike the newbie, Wes and Alan the young bucks, Scott the master, come together to talk about everything running. At different stages of experience, they are brought together by a passion. Some may call it an obsession. Join us while we talk about track stories of battling it out with friendly competition, thoughts on ultra running, our current workouts, along with upcoming races, recaps, training tips, and more. Alright, I know this seems like a special treat to be getting two episodes so close to one another, and no, it's not Christmas. I just had some time to finally edit past recordings. So, in this episode, we talk about the Boston Marathon. Once again, we have Ryan Mativier as a fill-in who has run Boston a number of times and gives his perspective on what to consider when lining up at this special race. We also have another guest, Jake Norris, for this episode who will be making an appearance in coming episodes. So, Boston Marathon is less than two weeks away, so I thought we could talk about that. We have one person who, well, two people that have never run it and three people that have run it. We can each give our little perspective or tidbits of you know, what to expect and for preparation, what kind of items you wish you had the first time, second time, fueling. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that we can cover. Yeah. Um, How many times have you run it, Alan? Uh, this will be my third. Yeah. And I'm very happy that I'm actually going to be able to line up because okay. it was dicey for a little it's been a long winter. You got, a, you got a week and a half, man. Don't yeah, that's right. <laughs> plenty yeah. of time. I have plenty of time plenty to screw this up. This is what we call the accelerated fitness plan and then taper. Yep. So, um, Ryan, how many times have you run Boston? I've run three. I qualified four times, and there was one time where injuries were to the point where I I wasn't going to bother doing it because it's I mean it's such a commitment and financially and time-wise so yeah three times and it's hard to top that that race so I haven't really done any other races marathon wise ex- since that one and when was that when was the last time you did it uh would we you and I ran it two years ago yeah 2017 oh okay it was hot but we both PR'd so that was nice oh, wow. That's yeah great. and there's definitely a story behind that because that was Definitely an experience at the start of that race. I personally was almost after the first three miles, I pretty much just said, oh, geez, this is a big waste of time here, you know? I mean, I had trained and I was fit. Alan and I were in really good shape and, you know, you almost kind of over analyze the weather before you even had a chance to see what you can do. So, but I, I, I think we both kind of had like a plan B, you know, in case things went bad as far as weather or circumstances like that. And so I immediately shifted after the first couple miles, realizing I was not going to do my starting pace that I intended on. And surprisingly, what ended up happening in that year is um, I kind of just chalked it up as being like, well, I might as well do it. I'm already here, you know, uh, you know, let's let's just experience like. The environment, you know, because normally when I'm running, I'm like, not, I don't really pay too much attention. Like my wife will look at the scenery and the buildings. She's like, did you see that building? And, you know, so this time I was kind of just more just running it to what I could run with the heat. And, um, but by the time I got to the the Newton Hills, um, I realized, God, I still got some, something left because I had gone so much slower than what I had been going. I'm just continuing my normal pace but I'm just passing people like I'm sprinting by them because everybody else is dead and so I get up to the top which is mile 21 ish and then I start doing the math on like okay well if I can hold this pace for another five miles what am I going to be ending up at and then all of a sudden I keep thinking then I'm like I think I could PR here it was crazy because normally you know I have this pre-built-in fall off or like failure that most people you know you start getting the leg cramp in mile 20 whatever so I kind of preemptively build that into my my plan usually it's about 45 seconds per minute I once I hit that point I can maintain the pain level about 45 seconds slower so and uh, but I didn't have to do that this time so I didn't kind of calculate that in my head as like well if I don't fall off the last six miles I can actually still PR even though I 
I went significantly slow. I was supposed to do like a 6.15 pace, and I ended up yeah. doing like a 6.30-ish, six something. Mm -hmm. It probably didn't help that you saw me pull away, and I was feeling really fresh. It was my first Boston, so... Yeah, we... He's so probably thinking like... So you were excited. Oh, yeah, it was pure, you know, jubilation and just like... So, uh, this was... that The first one would have been when? 2000 and... I ran... Are you talking about me or Alan? Uh, both. Well, the, well, no, this, the, hot, the hot one. 2017. 2017. So, yeah. what was the temperature that day? I think it was. It was 70 something. Well, okay. it was 70 something, but it I, it was close to low 80s. But the humidity was really high, and it was full sun. Yeah. Uh, at least for the first half of it, it was full sun. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it, it was to the point where we were taking water on both, both sides, sides of the street yeah. every mile. It was. It was. And crazy. I was carrying my own bottle in my hand. Right. Oh, I mean, man. we had to douse ourselves before the race even started because you could feel the heat already on your head. So. I know that at mile 22 it was very warm, so spectating was a struggle as well. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> but yeah, Alan was feeling real good, and I we had the intention of, or at least I had the intention we of, did. at least being able to run with him for maybe the first half. Yeah. You know, before it started getting a, a little bit daunting with, you know, the hills approaching and all that, but he was toasting me after the first two or three miles i could tell he was fresh he was bouncing around and i'm like okay i'm not doing this yes. but yeah so my first year was the year of the, of the bombing which i think was 2013 oh it was okay and then yeah. i did it the following year and then i had a year or two off because i had to re-qualify again because right. i missed my missed injury you. year right so then i had to do an, you know another one to qualify and then and then did 2017 so you said something when you started talking about the the heat and everything that I think is important to understand. You said you had a plan B. Yeah. Maybe what you can do, and Alan, yourself as well, uh, how did you determine what your objective was going to the starting line? So in other words, you're training, you're getting all your miles in, you're getting your workouts in, you're kind of tracking all this stuff, and I know you guys both are doing this, as, as most obsessive runners do. And, you know, you're starting to get down to the last... A um, few weeks of training and, and peaking and tapering and all that. How did you come up with your objective for finishing time? And then how did you select the so-called plan B? And what was the determining factor to pick plan B? I found uh, tracking heart rate and perceived effort level as something that really made sense to me. So I use all the tables with the, the V dot to evaluate my workout. So as the cycles go through the training program, I do a lactate threshold or a VO2 max, a long run with marathon pace. And according to a lot of the charts, it kind of puts you in, in a certain expectation yep. if all the stars align. If, if, everything, if you've done everything <laughs> appropriately, this is where you right. Could be. So that was the initial rationale for what potentially I could do. Um, okay, so what was that? So you. So that was a 245 okay. marathon, which is about a 617, yep. 619, something like that. So that was the objective. Correct. Plan A. Plan A. Plan, a. Um, Plan B. Plan B uh, really didn't happen until I was running. I, I anticipated having to, and we had talked about it at the beginning of the race. But what I did is the first first mile or two, I went out at the projected goal. And I based on not only how I felt, but also I was evaluating my heart rate at that pace because I know what it should have been at that point. After a taper, and I've done the race the two previous times with the same goal time. So I know from past experience what my 245 pace, the first two miles, what it should, should, feel, like. What it should feel like yeah. and what my heart rate effort should be like. Okay. And it was like 10 beats per, you know, higher than it should have been. Right. So I immediately knew. Again, like I, I almost, like, I don't even know what, I, I, I almost needed a mile just to gather my thoughts on, like, what the hell am I even doing now, here now? Now what? So let me ask you a question, though, before you get too far away from that. So you've, you've done all your training, you've tracked your heart rate, you've used the perceived effort, the heart rate, you've used all the available tools, pace, and everything. And you get out there, and as you said, you're looking at your heart rate, and it's 10 beats, give or take, above what you anticipated it should be on a so-called normal day. Correct. Could you have contributed that to the anxiety 
of the heat? I guess potentially. I'm not a good heat runner anyway. So that... So potentially you're thinking, oh, it's going to be yeah. hot. I'm, I'm screwed. Yeah. This is not going to work. You know, and, and I think that's important to understand because, you know, all of us will have, we all have our, our nemesis, whether it's cold or heat or humidity or whatever it is. And, and when we go to a starting line or when we get to the last 48 hours before our so-called peak event, we start to get wound up. Oh, what's the temperature doing? Oh, what's going to go on? Oh, my God. Oh, Jesus, i got to get drink more water. You know, those are the, some of the things that run through our minds. And so I'm wondering if maybe, to your point, you went into it, you started to get anxious about the fact that it was going to be hot. You're not necessarily a good heat runner from your perspective. Yeah. So you switched to plan B, which in effect put you at a more reasonable pace, slowed you down, and allowed you to do much better than you expected. Yeah, and so a quick side note about the heat thing. Ironically, that same year, what, three or four weeks prior? I'm not sure, because you didn't, yeah, you didn't it run was, it. Yeah, uh, Eastern I, States. I, I ran the Eastern States 20 as one of my long runs, and it was ridiculously hot. I was overdressed because I didn't realize how hot it was going to be. I had, like, skin-tight, you know, Under Armour stuff. So it was one of those things where you don't just, like, throw off your shirt, you know, in the middle of it. So I, I was... I was wrecked at about mile, I don't know, 13. Yep. And I still had seven miles left, and I was literally, like, I almost, I was, like, pass-out level. Yeah. I, I was supposed to have somebody drop water off, and they couldn't get through the traffic, so I was, like, four or five miles late on my water. So, anyway, I had that horrid experience happen to me, but I, I honestly think if that didn't happen, then... My reaction to Boston, I think, would have been exactly what you said. I think, I think it would have been much more um, of a daunting issue. But I kind of just been through that, and I was like, I'm not letting that happen again. Right. So I was kind of prepared a little bit more than I would have been just by coincidence. So. Alan, my it was my first Boston, so for me it was 2:45 was the initial goal because Ryan and I had trained together and we yep. were hitting those paces, um, and I had done a half. I did do Bedford half marathon and ran a time that would indicate right around there. And so by, by indicate, so you, you ran New Bedford as a race or a training run? Race. Okay, so you've got your time for New Bedford, so you plugged it into McMillan exactly. or yep. Jack Daniels or, or one of the online calculators. Yeah, the calculator. You actually beat that, didn't you? Because it's a five, 5.59 pace for a half. Is that what you ended up doing? No, it was less than that. Right, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Like, yeah. you actually, as far as the projection, you were actually... 242 was the projected. Was the projected. Yeah. But okay. I still, yeah. I think we had talked yeah. at one of the Triple Crown meetings, and I had told you about my, my goals, and you said to kind of stick with 245, and then if yeah. it's feeling good, then go for it. If it's your day, and I think that's the important message especially with Boston, but go ahead and finish. So that was my main goal, was to get 245, and then um, the B goal, I guess, was probably 250, and then C goal would be PR, and at that time it was uh, 256. Um, I wasn't really worried about the weather. I was so you know, involved in what was happening around me that... Taking in the sights and sounds? Yeah, and I, I don't mind we do track workouts at you know five thirty six o'clock in the summer. Uh, I don't think Ryan really does too many track workouts in the heat no. during the summer. So first thing in the morning before sunrise, Get out <laughs> of the way, baby. or right yeah. at sunrise. So I think that helped a little bit. As long as it's not humid, right? Um, humidity is where you know I struggle. But heat, I just like I said, I had a bottle, my own carry bottle of water, and then was getting water from both sides to um, compensate that. Kind of all that went out the window as soon as the gun started, and I was Bang. like under six minute, you know, <laughs> the first couple miles, and I had saw Rob Ashby before the race, and he was talking about how he was a little bit worried about the heat, and I think I caught him, because he had a lower bib number, I caught him around 13, half or 15, and stayed ahead of him for about 
10 miles, and then at 25, he just comes jaunting just past me. <laughs> cruising, yep, cruising I, by in Rob Ashby style. Yep, and I eventually crumpled um, yep. <laughs> at, right after I saw you at 22. Still was able to PR. Yep, and what did you run that day? 247. Yep, so you had a nine-minute PR yep. on a hot day. And I walked. And, and you walked. The last two or three months. I, I always find it interesting that, you know, Boston... Not only is the course challenging uh, because of the location of the hills, the hills themselves are not what you consider daunting. Right. You know, you run out near where you live, right. you know, Ryan, and you know, you go out Lane Road. And we stuff reproduce like that. them like yeah. on every long run. Yeah. yeah, and it's it's like okay, those are hills. You know, if you go down there and you're going to do a ten mile run, you know, through the Newton Hills, it's like okay, where's the hill? Yeah, I had never. Uh, other than, you know, at the Adidas store, and they have that wooden sculpture that shows the elevation. I had never run any of the course, so I really didn't know exactly what to expect. It hit me a little bit harder once I got to it. Yeah. But, like you said, they're not anything crazy. No, not when you stand, when you take them by themselves. They're nothing that is daunting and, and um, scary from the yep. standpoint of a hill, a stretch of hills, but when you couple that with a net downhill of some 200 feet getting down to the 13 mile mark yeah. before you start climbing again you know you've already fried your quads you've already th told yourself uh, probably f at least a dozen to 25 times this is my day I'm going to run a world record this is a new PR I am on my game and then you made the right hand turn and started up the Newton Hills and you're thinking they do not have enough ambulances in the fire station to save me at this moment. Where's the porter potty? I'm dehydrated. I yeah. feel like I'm gonna shit myself. I'm done, and everything is going to be coming out of everything. I'm going to lose it all. Um, and I think that's you know too many people. I think they get excited the first three to four miles. It's downhill. It's severely downhill. So you're a little cautious there. But what that also does is it sets you up for the perception that when grade does level off a little bit you're still going downhill yeah it's just not straight down and you get going you're cruising along and you get into the cadence that's comfortable and you're thinking to yourself you know I, I feel pretty good and you look down at your watch and it says you know 15 to 20 seconds faster per mile than you were planning on but oh I feel really good and then you get 10k into it and I say oh man I'm still feeling really good I guess I'm just gonna go with this and then you usually get to about the 8 to the 10 mile mark and you think to yourself, you know, I wonder if I gotta back off a little before I get to the hills. No. And yeah, <laughs> and, and well, and that's what happens. And you say, I'm going to. Yeah. I'm going to slow down a bit and, and make sure I get some water or whatever. And you look at your watch and you slow down three seconds. And you know, you get the next mile. I'm really gonna slow down this time and it's the same. And you know, so it's very difficult because of what you start out with and what you know you're going to run into uh, at Boston to really be as controlled as you should be. But I, you know, when Ryan was talking earlier, he went to plan B, so he backed it off. He went by heart rate, which I'm not a big fan of during a race. Uh, but, in, you know, for a lot of people it works because they do get that feedback that says, oh, I've got to slow down. And they bring their heart rate back to where it should be so that they can do a 20-mile run followed by a 10K race. That sounds like exactly what Ryan did. Yeah. You know, just going to cruise, going to get to the 20-mile mark, and then I'm going to see where I'm at. What were some of the things that you wish you had at the start or you might have forgot? Oh, yeah. that's. I was lucky enough, my first marathon, I actually trained with and went to it with somebody had run it once before. And I think if that didn't happen, I would have gone to that race severely unprepared. Because yeah. it's unlike any type of race that you ever set up for. You, you, you get shipped out way before the race. Usually first thing in the morning, it's significantly colder um, than the race itself. So the best advice I was given was to make sure that you just bring a bunch of stuff that you don't care about throwing away when you go to walk to the start line. So we had a couple pairs of sweatpants, a couple sweatshirts, a couple
couple gloves, hats. I even bought uh, brought a, an extra pair of shoes to walk around in, so that way in the field your feet are all wet, you know. And then when you go to leave, you put your actual race shoes on. So I had a separate pair of socks. I mean. They must have had, like, I don't even know, like, the, the mounds of clothes that they gave the Salvation Army is, is just a sight to see in itself. It was, it's pretty crazy. And we were in the first wave. I imagine what it was at the end. It must have just been a mountain. <laughs> and, that, and that's exactly right. So. Well, I was going to say, you know, as far as food goes, they actually really do have quite a variety for people. Um, but I still brought all the drinks and the packets of, you know, goo packets, whatever you use just in case because you know they have different kinds there that you might not be used to so that's something obviously you'd want to bring I really uh, the first time I went I took the bus and I didn't like to do that at all because you have to be there twice as long going on the bus so the next time I ended up getting driven there and then after that I I mean it was so much more convenient to do that if you have the ability to do it so that was the other piece of advice I'd give is if you've got somebody coming to cheer you on, just get driven out there and let them drive to wherever they're going to cheer you on. And usually have plenty of time for them to do that. Everyone thinks it's going to get all congested and crowded and you can't get there, but you can definitely get driven there. I've driven a number of people to the starting line. And usually, the, of course, it's a little easier now. I say easier. It's easier for the runners that I'm dropping off because it's no longer a noontime start. So there's not five hours of waiting and finding something to occupy your mind and, and stay warm. Uh, with the you know the 9:30 and the 10 o'clock start, it's a little bit more reasonable. But uh, I always found that if I could get folks on their way out there and, and get them dropped off, if I can get into Hopkinton between 6:30 and quarter seven, they typically close the road uh, leading up to the school at about seven o'clock. So if you can get in under that, dropped people off right outside of the Athletes Village before. Pull up, there's, a, there's what used to be a gas station right there at the corner. I pull in there, everybody gets unloaded, they grab their stuff, last minute uh, good lucks and all that fun stuff, and I usually head back for the hotel, and these guys can walk across the street and into the Athletes Village. Uh, to Ryan's point too about clothing, I know a number of people that just make a, a trip to Goodwill, Salvation Army a couple of days before. They grab the extra sweatpants, they grab the extra sweatshirts. Uh, but I think probably one of the most effective things that you can bring is a blanket. And even if you can get a, an old pillow. What about a trash bag? A lot of people have tarps for the yeah, water so you can lay yeah. down and not get wet. Yeah, and, um, and it really does depend on what the weather is that day. You know, yeah, if right. it's going to be damp, yeah, you're definitely looking at the garbage bags and, and what do I need to do to stay dry. Uh, and then, But if it's going to be a dry day and all you're really worried about is keeping my feet dry and uh, staying warm. I mean, I've dropped people off out there before when it's been 32, 33 degrees, and it's not slated to go up into the mid 40s to 50 until you know 11 o'clock in the morning so the blankets the garbage bags as a as a backup uh and like i say the old pillows or a sweatshirt you can roll up and use as a pillow and, and then you just find a spot the, the times that i've done it i think there was one time i actually just kind of hung out and socialized and wandered around and, and did all that stuff most of the other time i grabbed the newspaper i bought a paper Grabbed my pillow, my blanket, found a, uh, a doorway, and uh, just camped out in the doorway. <laughs> now, the first year that you ran it, what year was that? Uh, 83. Okay. And when was the last year that you ran it? Uh, 2009. 2009. So you've seen a, a span of security measures, um, what you're allowed to bring in, what you can't bring in. What was it like the first time that you ran it? Logistically, did much change, I guess. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, a lot changed. In 83, it was, uh, you know, get out there as, as early as you could, get secured, because they did close the roads. And uh, I took the bus one year. And the only reason I took the bus is because everybody else that I was running with, you know, for PR Racing, they all wanted to take the bus. It was their first time. They wanted to experience the whole deal. Uh, it was the biggest mistake of our lives, because yeah. it was the year all the buses broke down. 
So, I think it was 2002 or 2003. It was a hot day. Uh, I want to say it got to be 80 uh, that year. At least it felt like it to me. Um, and we went to the Common, which is where they were picking everybody up. Um, we went to the Common at about, uh, I think they told us to be there at 7.15, 7.30 based on our numbers. Luckily, we all had bib numbers for the first wave, first corrals. So we were over there early. When we got there, the line was, I wasn't, wouldn't call it substantial, but it was, it was long enough. But, you know, you got buses that are taking 50, 60 people at a time, so it seemed like it was going to go along pretty well. So 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock rolls around, we're there. 8.30 rolls around, we're there. 9 o'clock, and now all of a sudden the buses aren't coming on a regular basis anymore. And because of the heat, the buses were starting to break down. So they weren't able to make the round trips. So now there's less and less buses. Now this is when it was still... It was still a noontime start. Now, 10 o'clock, we'd been there two and a half to three hours. We were still in line, and we were still no closer, it didn't seem like, to getting on the bus than we were at, at 7. So now we're starting to look around. People are trying to flip, you know, flag down taxis. Hey, can, I, can you give me a ride? Hey, wh how much is it going to cost to get the Hopkinton? So there's an awful lot of panic, which, on one side of it, was good because the line was getting much shorter very rapidly. On the other side of it, it was like, okay, we've got eight or ten of us that were in line waiting to get out to the starting line. None of us wanted to leave the other ones behind, so it wasn't like three of us could get in the cab and call it good. So we ended up waiting and waiting and waiting. We finally got on the bus. I want to say that we got on the bus to head out to Hopkinton at just about 11 o'clock. It's about a 40-minute bus ride to get to Hopkinton. So now we've been standing in line. We've listened to the weather. We knew the weather was going to get hot. So we've all been drinking water. We've all been doing the things that we're supposed to do to hydrate and be ready to go, anticipating that we weren't going to be standing in line for four hours. So now everybody's on the bus. We all stink. And we all have to piss. <laughs> so... Needless to say, there was a number of water bottles that were <laughs> replaced with not water uh, on the ride out there. Um, people are changing on the bus. Everybody's looking at their watch. So at the time, where they dropped you off of the bus uh, was basically right at the intersection of Main Street. And I want to call it School Street. I don't know that it is. But what it was is you had to go up to the school, which was about probably about three-tenths of a mile. Drop off your bag in one of the buses oh, that yep. was going to take your gear to the finish line and then go back down to your corral. Now, obviously you could go right to your corral, but none of the stuff that you just brought with you was going to make it to the finish line. So now you're either going to be at the finish line with nothing or you take the time to run up to the buses. So we're all piling off the bus. We'd already changed, our shoes were changed, and this and that. So running up the hill to get to the school, find the bus that had the appropriate number for the numbers that we had, throw the bags of gear into those bus windows because there was somebody inside grabbing them, and then head back down to basically where we had just come from, one block over, so we could get into the appropriate corral, which, as I mentioned, was the first corral. So we're going all the way back down to the common right there in Hopkinton. Side streets because, at the time, the corrals filled the road that led from the school down to the common. So you couldn't just run down the road or the sidewalk because that was all full of the runners that were already in their corrals. So we're taking side streets, we're going back and forth. So most of them were able to get right into their corrals. I, on the other hand, still had to take a piss. So made my way down the back streets. Luckily, I'd been out to Hopkinton enough times, so I had a pretty good idea where the side streets went. I came up the back way. The good news was it was like three minutes before the start. Actually, it was probably closer to five minutes before the start. Because as I was getting into the porta potty 
that was had no lines, no waiting, they started the national anthem. Well, I'd been waiting for four hours to take a piss. Needless to say, I stood there for the entire national anthem. So I finally get done. I go running over to uh, where the corral was, just about the time the gun was going off. Given my athletic ability and agility, I tried to scale the fence and ended up on my ass <laughs> with everybody starting to run around me. So, so it was a very auspicious start on a hot day, but you know, that the logistics of that day just it was a nightmare. And that's why I've always suggested to folks if you can find, as Ryan said, if you can find somebody to drive you to the start and they're willing to get up at 5 15 in the morning gather everybody together, get you in a car. It really is a low pressure, low stress way to get to the start. Um, and then you just get there and chill. You relax. Yep. If you feel like socializing, you do. If you're really intent on running a PR or, you know, giving it your best effort that day, then, you know, you become, you stay a little bit more focused, but I think you do miss out uh, on the whole experience with the Athletes Village because as Ryan said, they do do a great job and I know you experienced it, Alan. Yep. They do a great job now with the food and the tents and and uh, the distractions. Entertainment, music, the ah, music and everything. everything. So it's like a party. They And they do, and they do try and make it so that it's user friendly, you know, so you can get out there, enjoy that, so that you'll want to come back. So it's part of the customer experience, I guess is the best way to look at it. First year that I ran it, I stayed in Natick at a hotel there, and luckily that hotel had a um, bus that drove you, you paid $10, and they would drive you to the start, or at least to the other buses that then drove you to the village, <laughs> so whatever it was. So it was a hopscotch. Yeah, yeah, but it worked, and it was it took off the pressure. Because staying in Natick outside of Boston was significantly cheaper. So if you're not looking for that whole Boston experience, I would certainly look outside of Boston. And I think you still get the experience, because the whole day before is yeah. really the big thing. I mean, it's what? unbelievable, right. the convention center, and just the buzz around, like, that day walking around the whole city. So I didn't, I mean, I... I stayed in town the first year and then out of town the other years and I don't feel like I really missed I would have missed out on much of anything personally like just going down to the the hotel you know entrance and sitting there waiting for a bus I I wouldn't I wouldn't say you're missing much you know but definitely like the a lot of people don't go there a day or two before and I feel like that's a huge mistake correct and I and I agree with that I think you know if you really want to if this is your first Boston or you know, uh, you really want to experience Boston, the experience, then what you need to do is you need to get down there, um, not Sunday, I would definitely get down there Saturday, midday, you know, yeah. mid-afternoon, make your way into, you know, the expo, spend a couple of hours walking around. That's when most of the running celebrities are going to be there. They're not going to be there on Sunday. They're going to go back to their hotels, they're going to rest, they're going to relax, they're going to do their normal pre-race stuff. They'll be there maybe for a couple of minutes here or there on Sunday, but a lot of them will be around on Saturday. And, you know, you won't get that last minute rush either from everybody coming into town on Sunday morning to try and get their packets and this and that. You can do the expo, you can take in the sights and sounds. You can do some of the things that um, the Marathon Weekend offers for social activities and just being around runners, you know, and to Ryan's point. If you stay in town, yeah, it's, it's easier to walk. It's easy to get to here or there, but it's almost just as easy to stay out in the, the Newton, the, the Natick area. Go to the Green Line. That's exactly what we do. Jump on the tee. Yep. Get your, you know, you ride in, you don't have to worry about parking, you don't have to worry about any of those other deals, but, and you can get to everywhere you want to be. Well, both years I stayed at the Hampton Inn and Natick. First year they had a bus line that took you, second year they didn't offer that, so I had my cousin drive me to the start, which worked out great. Um, they, like you said, they had to get up early, but uh, they had enough time to drop me off get back to the hotel, 
shower, get ready, get onto the train, and they actually stayed. Mike was there last year mm-hmm. um, as a spectator. Yep. It was harder for the spectators than the runners. And it and it's funny you say that because it, it is more difficult as a spectator if you've got a spot that you want to get to. And yeah, um, we get a spot. Yeah, try to get the same one. To try and get there, and and you know, last year was probably the first year where the mile 22 spot we go to was not overcrowded. Of course, being monsoon conditions, yeah. uh, that might have helped. That was I, never so wet. Yeah, oh, yeah. I, I might have miscalculated when we really needed to get there. Because, you know, I, I'm a routine guy. Okay, we need to get there by 9. Okay, I didn't need to get there. I could have gotten there at one minute before the lead wheelchairs were coming through and we'd have been able to walk right up to where we typically get to. So. Yeah. Where where I was, it was we we wouldn't have been able to do that. It started getting really crowded. Yeah, we were at the Back Bay Fire Station, just yep. on that turn onto Boylston Street. And and, and again, you yeah. you get closer and closer to the city, and it does get more and more crowded. You could be five or six people deep, yeah. which, you know, I'm not I'm not interested in that. When we're at mile 22, we're right in the corner. We're just beyond the water station at 22, the first aid station, and I've always found that's a great spot because you really start to see the carnage. Yep, that's exactly it. (laughs) So some of the things that we've seen at mile 22 would scare young children. And, you know, it just, you've gotten to the point where there's a sense of relief on a lot of people. They've gotten over the top of the hills. They're on the way down, heading down to Cleveland Circle. I'm feeling pretty good. And you can, it's... It's very easy to tell when somebody's feeling good when they come by you at 22. And it's very difficult to hide it if you feel like crap. Because it's the shuffle, it's the I can't try and lift my knee any higher than I am. Um, and, you know, it's just there, there is an awful lot of folks that come by there that look really good, but. It's probably 50-50. How many people look like, I might have gone a little too quick. (laughs) One other thing I just want to mention in regards to the preparation that really kind of helped me, maybe more mentally during the race, or have something to do other than just think about the monotony of it all or whatever, is you go online, you can find literally a mile-by-mile detailed description where people have really put some time into describing every aspect of that mile, not only, you know, what to experience with elevation or hills or whatever, different, different things. And then as well as, yep. Right. And they kind of gives you expectations or things to look forward to. You kind of read that ahead of time. And then also, um, the pacing bracelets, which I don't know if you're a proponent of, but I found it kind of nice to have like, okay, what do I got to do on this next mile? According to my, because some people start, start hard. So what, what happens is you can go online and they've got these calculators that if you're somebody that has a strong finish and fades hard at the end, they yeah. give you a pacing bracelet and they'll print it off and they'll calculate out what the best approach is for that sort of type of mentality. That type of race. If you're an even effort runner or whatever, then they'll have a different one. And it was nice because during the race, like every mile, be like, okay, what do I got to do this time? So it gave, gives you just another component of something to, to look at, to gauge things to make sure that you're kind of sticking with. I, I, I did have a plan when the gun went off. <laughs> I'm not sure what happened to that plan. Oh, wait, it's on my wrist. And, yeah. I, and I think that's great for a lot of people because, to your point, Ryan, you know, so many folks get out there and they're, they're I won't say they're flying by the seat of their pants, but they're really ill-prepared for what they're taking on. You know, they've had a couple of good runs, you know, their most recent runs, they felt great. They had a good long run and, and this and that. And, you know, now all of a sudden, they're thinking, well, Jesus, I just did my last long run. They finally go in and look at a calculator and, and a, an equivalent thing. And they say, well, if I did my long run at this, I should be able to race this. Oh, my God, I can run a PR. And they have one or two good workouts that they go by. Yeah, and the one thing just as far as the Boston bracelet, which I was surprised about and I was kind of happy about it is, no matter how much you think you've studied the race or look at the contours of the elevation changes, 
when you know you go and you look at mile two when you're supposed to run a six you know i was supposed to run a 619 but then that mile i was supposed to do a, a 609 but then you look down the line and you're like oh in three miles i'm gonna i only have to run a, a 630 right. so that must mean some hills are coming up here so it kind of gives you a little bit of a heads up to prepare yeah. and for me it, it helped no, like, and, and took I, away any anxiety about okay what's coming up right. should i slow down because if you just think you're going to run a 617 pace every mile like that's the dumbest thing ever so it's over <laughs> it's, it's over right so yeah and, and i think that it, it really does come down to the individual it, it comes down to you know what did you use for your preparation what did you use for your practice modes uh, and i think this is where a lot of people miss out uh, they don't practice they go out and they run, but they're not practicing what they're going to do. So uh, I was always, and, and I continue to be a proponent of racing uh, right up until the end, because there's always something you can be practicing when you go to a race. You know, whether it's what am I having for breakfast, or you know, how do I go out the first two miles, or you know, what am I, you know, what's my warm up look like? You know, all of these little things that so many folks. Uh, leave to chance and they can come up big when you're going to be running for anywhere from two and a half to four and a half or five hours what was a little mistake two months ago when you did a 5k turns out to be a huge error you know when you're running for three and a half or four hours um, so I've always been you know whether it's eastern states or they used to be the the Reed Field uh, 15 miler. Uh, New Bedford half marathon was always a, a, a checkpoint. Uh, the elite runners always went to New, New Bedford. So you'd go down there and you'd see, you know, the Greta Weitzes and you'd see the Greg Myers and, you know, all of the, the folks, the, the Billy Rogers and those guys, all of the, the lead runners were going to New Bedford because it was the last opportunity to test themselves in a condition that was going to be challenging no matter how good the weather was that is a challenging course because of the ups at the beginning the downs in the middle and then the ups at the end um, so it really gave them a, a gauge as to where is my fitness compared to where i think it was and does that fit to the plan that i was working so that you can readjust you can make a realistic plan going into the race you know ryan you were talking about you know, you use your heart rate and you use the pacing and, you know, your threshold runs and, and all of these factors were going into, okay, what is my objective and what's realistic based on what I've, what's my body of work leading into that? Yeah. And I think that's helpful. If you're a data person, it's easy to look at that stuff. If you're kind of a, I'm going to run and, you know, I did this that today and I did this and, you, you know, you're kind of loosely configured from the standpoint of a, a training plan, I think it's important to race more often. Get an understanding of what your fitness is so that you're not going into it and you know, you're know you sucking bog water you know, by the 10 mile mark uh, when you should be feeling your best. And Boston is Boston. It's exciting. Mike, do you want to talk about as a spectator convention and how you yeah. felt and yeah, this like year, walk us through? Yeah, this year would be my second year, but last year I went down on Sunday so we went. Oh yeah, we went we to the convention. Yeah, and that when you said going down down yeah, to Boston on Sunday was really cool, kind of cool because we go the the expo was amazing. I've never seen so many like running people and just so much stuff. And uh, and then uh, once we once we left there, we went out on around town. We went to a tracksmith. Yep. We, they had these little pop up stores everywhere. Yep. You know, for, mm -hmm. you know, for, with different stuff, and it was just it was. Really, really exciting. Different running stuff. Yeah. Cool. What, what, what <laughs> kind of stuff did they have? Well, we got those those tank tops. They had shoe sales. And then that I saw that map that you were talking about at that other store. The contour map. Oh, yeah. The Adidas wood yeah. thing. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So that was, that was pretty exciting. And just the crowds yeah. were amazing. And then um, the day of the marathon, we dropped you off at the bus stop thing. And then we got on the train. And we basically got there. By the time we left there, we got there at a good time. The crowds were starting to pour. We just stayed at that one spot. Just stayed in that spot. Yeah, and there was like a Starbucks or something down the street, so we could, you know, one person would go down, buy coffee, and come back up. And then it started raining. Yeah. <laughs> and it was just. And then the rain began. Yeah, and it just never ended. <laughs> but the most amazing thing was, is we stood there, and you could hear where we were on the corner of 
we're near the what, Back Bay Fire Station on the corner yep. of Boylston and yes, Harrisburg. the last Harrisburg. turn, right? Yeah, yeah the last yeah. turn. Yeah, and you could tell because you could hear off in the distance the crowds, and you get into chills up your arm because then you'd start seeing them, and then they'd come up the hill, and that was the other amazing thing: wheelchair, the coming up the hill. I mean, they're so tired. Yeah. Everybody's cheering them on. You can see they just. They're trying so hard, and then you see in their in their in their expression on their face, because everybody's cheering them on. They just they do it, turn the corner, and then you just all you hear is like segmented, distance-wise, <laughs> clapping yep. going down the street. It was like <laughs> yeah, chills again. Yeah, amazing <laughs> with that. So, did you guys experience as runners come around that corner? The first year I did it, I noticed it the most because the crowds were never bigger than that first year I did it, um, because they didn't have restrictions after like before the bombing happened, I think they let more people on the sidewalks. I came around that corner and that cheering was so loud, I could actually feel the push from the, the, from the cheering yeah, and the, the clapping. Yeah, it was, yeah. Un, I literally could feel it. And uh, that was the most amazing thing. I was like, that is unbelievable. But I, yeah. I mean, that was just that one time. I didn't notice it the other years. Yeah, I so. get like chills when that was happening because the sounds and just the whole thing and then seeing people that you know come running up. Typically, when I made it to that turn, I wasn't feeling nothing. It would have been backing trucks up over me, and I was going to feel nothing. I think I had one year, potentially, that would have been 96, where I actually felt good. I ran the entire distance, and uh, I basically went out, you know, nice and comfortable. I mean, this was uh, the 100th anniversary, so there was uh, 50,000 runners out there. Uh, Kelly and I went down, and... We just said, look, there's too many runners to worry about going fast. We're just going to kind of cruise along. And I went out nice and comfortable, was slapping hands, <laughs> you know, and picking the daisies and looking at the buildings and, yeah. and this and that. And, you know, quite honestly, it was it was probably one of the better Bostons start to finish. It wasn't my fastest. It was one of the better Bostons that I've had start to finish just the way that I felt because I had gone out so relaxed I wasn't trying to pass everybody in the first two and a half to three miles and that would have been the only year I noticed it yeah. and I was so spent by the time I got there just from the, the size of the crowds and the the enormity of the race that it was just like you know what I got here it was a little different than 83 83 I was the, seeing purple elephants riding <laughs> bicycles with uh, you know Umbrellas and you were checked and out. I had checked out at mile 22. It was over. I had, uh, you know, I, I had gone through 20. I went through 21 miles at. I think it was just over two hours. Might have been 201, and it was either 21 or two miles. So I was, I was on you know 222, 223 pace. Then it began. Is that why you picked 22 to be your spectator? Uh, yeah, I think so. Because, uh, <laughs> Just like a memory. Like I, I remember going down into Cleveland Circle and th that little bit of a downhill, and that's where it started to come apart. That's exactly yeah. my first year, too. Yeah. And Dang, that's like, fast. 222 pace you were doing? Yeah. And I was, uh, and I ended up running. So I ran, so I ran the first, you know, 22 miles. And I, like I said, I think it was just over two hours or so. And uh, it took me 32 minutes to run the last four. <laughs> so, so 234 was your? Yeah, 233 is where I ended up. And uh, wow. there was a friend of mine at miles 25. And uh, that's right by the sicko sign. Uh, yeah, the just beyond there. Yeah. yeah, just beyond there. He'd gone to the Red Sox game. He'd come out, and uh, he was standing there. He hollered at me. I stopped. I looked at him. He told me. I have no recollection of the event <laughs> whatsoever. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but the, the good news about coming apart at the seams at 22, you've got four miles of cool down. <laughs> and uh, so that night I felt pretty good. Uh, I was working for a sporting goods store at the time, and we had some tickets to some of the after parties. I met uh, Marty LaQuarrie, um, you know, and some of the other running celebrities that night at one of the uh, after parties. So... But yeah, it was it was ugly. I had Joan Benoit pass me right at the top of uh, Heartbreak Hill. There you go. <laughs> I was like, oh God, out oh. of my ego. Yeah, but it was still, it was cool. I was like, oh, there's Joan. There's Joni. <laughs> but uh, that same year too, I think it was at mile 22. It was my first year, and I I don't know the name of the street, but there's almost like a 
a 90 degree right hand turn. I literally go around that turn and I'm just thinking about trying to finish and everybody has to do this hard turn but then there's a water station right after. I got clipped from behind, fell flat on my face, scratched up my watch, whatever. I jump back up and I go, who the fuck? <laughs> you because you're running with the same people for a while. Like, nobody, like, copped up to it and I was so pissed. And I was like, somebody better tell me who the fuck is that. And, uh, so I never found out, but it was great. Yeah. Did you so, have Incredible Hulk? And yeah, it was, it was ridiculous. I, so anyway, I actually got mad from it and I ended up going faster. That's right. After it happened. But it was, it was crazy because you're, like, exhausted. Your legs aren't even working the same. And I have to, you know, go flat on my face and get back up. And, and, and I think Melissa yeah. had seen me at mile 24, and she sees me, like, bloody. You yeah, know, exactly. just wondering, like, what the hell happened yeah. to him? Yeah. In a bar fight? <laughs> yeah. I can't leave you alone for a minute. Yeah. Stop for a beer. Yeah. <laughs> Those Wellesley chicks? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's who it was. That's what I was thinking of. The Wellesley? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah the, the stream tunnel. tunnel. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you could hear so, them. That was cool, too. Yeah, yeah. this... this you know, and that's the thing about Boston. I mean, it it's a race, and it's and it should be a race for a lot of people. But quite honestly, 85, 80, 85 percent of the people that run Boston, they shouldn't consider it a race. They should consider it an event. Yeah. And look, you want to do your best. I get it. You want to try and achieve something that day. But the fact that you qualified and you made it there and you made it to the starting line and you were able to go is, is an achievement by itself. Enjoy the day. Um, take in the sights and sound. Pick the daisies. Look at the buildings. You know, <laughs> smell the roses and, and really enjoy the 26.2 the mile journey that is from Hopkinton to uh, the Prue. And, uh, and have a great day. And drink a beer after. Or two. Yeah. Or six. <laughs> or, so, when is everyone drinking? I'm drinking Harpoon Irish Cream Stout. Again? Again, yes. Scott? Uh, well, I've got the, uh, the Sam's Summer Ale. I'm forcing the, uh, forcing the issue here. I have a Baxter Hops Rice IPA. We didn't introduce Jake! <laughs> yes, Jake planning on doing the Boston I have not been to Boston yet, but I need to get on board with a training program. So I can run a qualifying race. And now, isn't uh, Don Hebert your illegitimate father? Ah, uh, he is. That document has been sealed. Oh, it's sealed. Oh, yeah. is that part of the juvenile records? <laughs> right now, I'm drinking a Lagunitas Imperial Stout. Before that, it was. Uh, that's a should be enough. That's yeah. a tall one too. So just, just let say, that be known. So, that's yeah. not a 16. No, it's a 22. 22. It fits perfectly in Jake's. That's why I bought the car. Yeah. <laughs> Jake shops by cars for uh, for the cup holders. <laughs> oh, the twenty it fits a twenty two in it. Yeah. It's got, it's got lane departure, so we'll be back. Thank you, Toyota. Well, there you have it. That was our most recent podcast. Hope you enjoyed and thanks for listening. We have many more topics in the pipeline, so be sure to subscribe to get our latest tale from the long run. Please feel free to comment and let us know your thoughts. In the next episode, we'll be talking about tapering and the different philosophies of each person.